This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. We've all heard the hype, but what exactly is artificial intelligence or AI? It may surprise us to learn that it's everywhere in everyday life, in examples that we may not even realize. And practically speaking, what are the current and future applications of artificial intelligence in pathology and image analysis? We're talking today with Professor Hamid T. Sush. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Hamid Tisush is professor in the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Waterloo, where he leads the Kimia Lab, the Laboratory for Knowledge Inference in Medical Image Analysis. We're going to be tackling all these issues surrounding artificial intelligence and more on Digital Pathology Today. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268 for more information. JAV Advisors. Professor Hamid Tisush, welcome to the podcast. We're here talking about artificial intelligence and digital pathology. So first, Tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get interested in artificial intelligence, your experiences? I know you have started in digital radiology, and then the field has evolved, and I think image analysis is now moving into digital pathology. So tell us. Tell us about your experiences. Hi, everybody. So uh, I started back in 1993. Uh, my supervisor basically pushed a bunch of paper into my hand and asked me to implement um, a backpropagation network in NZC, and one of those papers was uh, the seminal work of Roman Hart and Jeff Hinton on backpropagation 1985, and uh, that was the beginning of my work and interest in AI, and I had already started working on medical images as, as part of my um, master thesis and later PhD thesis, so it, it stuck with me then basically uh, from academic perspective working on machine intelligence and AI and uh, practical applied side looking at medical images and um, see what you can do with them back then was the boom of digital digitalization of uh, radiology and uh, left and right you could find radiology images to work on so that was not a problem so naturally uh, if you were looking for applied applications to use machine intelligence techniques uh, radiology was the choice yeah, I think there's obviously a lot of similarities between the two specialties of pathology and radiology. We're both using images uh, in medicine to make diagnoses. Uh, radiology, it's been said, is maybe a five to 15 year head start on us uh, for a variety of reasons, which we've covered in, in previous episodes of the podcast. Um, so I think there's differences and similarities. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But then also we're adding the this new layer of complexity. So first we have image analysis and then artificial intelligence. So could maybe we talk about that? Just give us some loose definitions of, first of all, image analysis. What do you mean by image analysis? Well, images, uh, when we capture any type of image with any type of camera, uh, basically the computer sees a matrix, an array of numbers, and that's the way that images are represented to the computer, which is not very helpful for the computer. Computers by default, are not very intelligent devices, and uh, without at least without some sort of software. And when you give them a bunch of numbers, they don't know really what to do with it. Um, 
And uh, image analysis means, okay, how can we make computers understand the image and then help us to do uh, uh, things that are tedious for us as humans, but actually after computer understand that array of numbers, then they can help us and uh, they can do the same task and same job in a much shorter time. So medical image analysis is when we use computers to uh, extract information, to segment, highlight, delineate part of the image that are of interest that most of the time could, could be tumors, for example. Uh, filter the images, increase the quality, uh, store them somewhere, communicate, send them somewhere else, uh, classify them, categorize them, uh, put them in specific groups, uh, extract numbers and the statistics that are useful to the pathologists and radiologists. All kind of stuff that you can do with, uh, with medical images if, after they are digitized. So after you have them in a form of some sort of numbers that the computer can process. Right, so it, it is, I think, certainly fascinating. How does how do these images, which we've been looking at for a very long time, hundreds of years, either on plane films in radiology or through the microscope, so that somehow becomes data, and then, as you said, it's converted into numbers, presumably zeros and ones and, and so forth, and then now it opens up this whole new possibility or this whole new world of image analysis. So what are some practical applications? I think, you know, I think we're all convinced that it's a very rich field and there's a lot of opportunities, uh, but what are in, so in radiology, for example, what would be a practical application that is actually in use of image analysis? So most of the time we think in terms of diagnosis that we can, uh, we can provide some sort of diagnostic information to the, to the, uh, to the radiologists or pathologists to do their job. But uh, uh, in the practice, it actually has turned out to not to be diagnostic decisions, at least in the past 20 to 30 years. It has to be quantification of image information and representing that quantification in some way uh, such that uh, the clinician can do his or her job. So um, classical example is counting something in the image. For example, if you're talking about cytology, counting cells. A specific type of cells. So finding a specific type of cells, counting them, and then showing uh, some sort of statistics to the uh, pathologists, cytologists, hematopathologists, whoever the expert is. And then they know what to do with that information. Because one of the challenges in medical imaging and medical image analysis is that things are subjective. And we cannot do diagnosis based on subjective perception. Whatever is quantifiable and we can quantify uh, should be uh, less prone to error. So uh, uh, the pervasive uh, large number of cases that medical image analysis has been able to help in the past two, three decades has been quantification of information in some way such that clinicians can use it as a base for diagnosis, treatment planning, prognosis, and so on. Okay, yeah, I think it certainly highlights the fact that people and algorithms are different Human beings are uh, equipped to do certain kinds of things, whereas computers may be better equipped to do other things, specifically counting and quantifying. So in pathology, I think one of the earliest and most practical applications is counting the cells, specifically, at least in surgical pathology, counting the number of brown cells based on an immunohistochemical stain. And so I think it's done that very well. But now I think there's the promise that we can develop so many more tools. And so strictly speaking, is this image analysis that's been with us for 20 or 30 years, is that 
artificial intelligence or is that just a programmed algorithm that doesn't really operate with intelligence? Well, we have to be clear that uh, what, what we call uh, so, uh, image processing or broader than that computer vision is a larger discipline than AI when we are talking about medical image analysis. So computer vision has been around for quite some time and AI or machine learning techniques have been one subset of uh, techniques and methods that we use in computer vision to understand medical images and recently because of the because of the huge success of a specific type of AI techniques which are namely uh, deep learning uh, computer vision has been able to provide more value so there are still we are still within computer vision and image processing we are still using a lot of conventional good old-fashioned techniques that were not able to really provide value back then but now that we have access to more uh, uh, more efficient and more capable AI solutions, we can go back and recover them, revitalize them, and uh, and, and and use them. So uh, uh, I, I would I would look at the computer vision as the subset, uh, sorry, as the superset, and AI as the subset. So and of course sometimes the subset can get more powerful than the superset, but uh, the the main the main framework for looking at medical images. Uh, from computer perspective is computer vision and uh, there are many many techniques that have nothing to do with intelligence they are not intelligent per se but they are absolutely necessary to understand and analyze medical images okay yeah so we can so the broad field is you would characterize as computer vision so how so and i think everyone is so excited about the possibility of ai i think you can't go anywhere at least in pathology or digital pathology without hearing about it so let's maybe start with just some definitions, just to be exactly clear what we're talking about. So what do we mean by artificial intelligence? And what do we mean by deep learning and machine learning? Yeah, well, it could take a while, but let's, we, we, can, we, can, we, can, we can try. So uh, we, we in the field, we try actually to avoid the, the phrase artificial intelligence because what we are using is per se machine learning or machine intelligence. Artificial intelligence is the larger umbrella is the vision for the future, for the next centuries. Uh, mainstream um, uh, has basically, uh, mainstream medical imaging and other applications have uh, used AI as the overall label. So we gave up and say, okay, we will also use AI. We are more comfortable to say machine learning or machine intelligence, but that's okay. So the artificial intelligence is the set of techniques that tries to imitate human capabilities in processing information so that that's a really broad uh, definition of ai machine learning is the part of artificial intelligence that have made it to the practical uh, uh, practical applications by being efficient and implant uh, you can implement them really easily in the practice and in the real world and machine intelligence and machine learning really are interchangeable sometimes we use the word uh, the phrase machine intelligence uh, for equivalent for ai Generally, we understand AI, and, and it seems the mainstream uh, media and mainstream research understand AI, artificial intelligence, as a label for the set of old techniques that can uh, uh, close the gap, the semantic gap between computers and humans. And the semantic gap is whatever the human understand, and in our case, pathologists understand, and the way that the computer understand have been very different. The way that they look at the images, they have been very different. 
AI, specifically machine learning, and more specifically deep learning, has been able to close that gap. And deep learning is a very small part of machine learning. Okay, so so what would be some examples of deep learning just in everyday life that we might witness but not really appreciate? So, you know, like you go onto Amazon.com and it gives you suggestions about what you might want to buy, or you're on Netflix and it suggests shows you might you might enjoy with 95% accuracy, so they say. Is that um, is that some form of artificial intelligence or deep learning? Well, there are many uh, applications of AI in everyday life that we, we, we use and we may not be even aware. So from, um, as you said, whenever you browse, you are using a browser, some sort of machine intelligence is behind the, the scene. Whenever you use your, your uh, robot vacuum, that's uh, machine learning. Uh, Autopilots uh, in airplanes have been for quite some time one of the early adopters of AI, self-driving cars that uh, we hear now here and there. But also those techniques in, in your uh, email client that protect you from getting too many spam filters are based on AI. Uh, plagiarism detections, the spell checkers are based on AI. And social media, the, the presence of the big social media is absolutely unimaginable without AI, the way that they present data, collect data, analyze data. High frequency trading in stock market is one of the applications of AI. Um, and, and Apple, Siri, and Google uh, now, and Amazon's Alexa, and all those devices, all of them use um, some level of AI. So AI is basically everywhere, and most of the time we may not even know that we are using AI, because it could be that the public uh, uh, has a different perception of how AI is. We usually see it in a physical way that we have uh, we have um, uh, um, some sort of robot moving around, but that's not the case. AI is generally uh, available in in some sort of in some sort of uh, as a piece of software that you okay. don't see, but you just see the effect of it. Okay, so it is. So it's everywhere around us, and we might not even appreciate it. And then you kind of suggested, I mean, there might, and there might be misconceptions or even mistrust about it. Like we don't want robots taking over our lives or robots taking on autonomous tasks, which could harm human beings. So there's, and maybe there's this black box element that people are mistrustful of. So we'll get into some of those issues, but just as you were talking about airplanes and cars, like if you look at the newer model cars, 2020 and 2021, it seems like they have all the pieces in place that they could drive themselves, but they don't quite do it. So for example, uh, there's lane departure function. So it keeps you in your lane. There's cruise control where it will follow the car in front of it at a, cer at a certain length or, and, or something like that. And so there's you know maybe five or six of these components that are already in the car. So you get the sense the car could drive itself, but that last missing piece is not there yet. So it is... So are, so it seems to me we're not that far away from self-driving cars, but there's things preventing it. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, because most uh, there, there are several challenges. One is that uh, uh, some um, AI techniques may still need um, massive infrastructure to be implemented, and that uh, would become a cost uh, issue and an implementation issue. Implementation issue. The other way is that in many cases we uh, have regulatory burdens, and uh, specifically in our case, but also for driving cars. In pathology, we have also medical imaging. We have the regulatory barriers and uh, requirements to put something in place. So, 
at the moment, uh, definitely in medical imaging, we are way behind the capabilities. So we could do a lot more with AI that we are doing right now. But of course, we want to do it step by step, one by one. The distrust and mistrust of people in a, regarding AI is mainly based on misconception and misunderstanding and a vast exaggeration of the actual capability of AI. We are not there yet to build those type of robots that people are afraid of based on looking at, I don't know, movies like Terminator. We are not there yet, and I don't know when we will be there. Hopefully, we will never be there yet. <laughs> but uh, uh, probably, uh, we, are not, we are talking centuries, not, not decades, uh, to get to, to really match the human cognitive capabilities. And I, I think a lot of mistrust comes because of the exaggeration uh, of the capabilities uh, of AI. We are not there yet. We can do a lot of stuff, but we are not there. And of course, some of it is from ethical perspective that we should take seriously and uh, discuss. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results. So let's bring it back to pathology. So I think we do have the capabilities to implement certain things today. And then, as you suggested, there's going to be barriers to doing those things, specifically uh, regulatory barriers and people's attitudes and other considerations. Uh, so, but practically speaking, what do we have the capability to do right now today? And what do you see as the first likely implementations of AI systems in anatomic pathology? So uh, what we do experimentally is one thing and what are in hospital is another thing. So clearly we have not been able uh, and nobody has, I would say nobody has expected that we make it uh, many, many AI um, uh, tools and devices make it to the hospital in a short time. Nobody would be uh, comfortable with that because we need to test, we need to validate, we need to discuss, we need to go to regulatory uh, clearances to get things done uh, in proper way. But at the moment, uh, one of the problems is that, we, again, we can do a lot of things that we are not doing. And uh, the, main, uh, the main problem is because of those, uh, we, are not, we cannot even get to the validation and uh, talking to the regulatory uh, bodies for many, many applications just because we still don't have access to data. And data is the, is the uh, butter and bread of AI techniques. And at the moment, there is no, we don't have any standards, we don't have large-scale, besides of one or two uh, publicly available, I'm talking large-scale, there are many, many small data sets that are available. At the moment, I say we are way behind the capabilities. So at the moment, we could really... Uh, um, I, when I say we, I mean research community at large, we could really uh, uh, provide some um, ease and comfort and efficiency for the way that pathologists work, but we can't do it because we don't have access to the data. That could be, again, that could be diagnostic help, that could be treatment planning, that could be research, that could be drug delivery, that could be precision medicine, uh, but we can't do it right now because we are we don't have access to large scale data comparing to the face recognition that everybody is uh, 
using the benefit of different platforms, starting from your cell phone to the social media, we cannot provide the same level of capabilities and help to the pathologist because we don't have something like ImageNet with one million images for training and testing. And uh, this, this, this has become a really a source of frustration for the ones who really want to get things done, but we can't. Yeah, so, so regulatory aspects are certainly sound like they could be tricky. And is it a different consideration in terms of regulation for AI, whereas historically systems have been validated and they're static, right? They work and you've shown them to work under a, a set of conditions which presumably mimics the real world experience. You know, but in AI, a component of it seems to be that this is continuously learning. And so are we gonna have to come up with a completely different view of, of regulation? I, uh, I have gone through FDA clearance. Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, so the, 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 the guiding principles of regulatory bodies and specifically FDA is, uh, so if you have an intended use for any medical device, um, then we do through um, risk medications and looking at potential hazards and harms and we put things in place that that never happens. That will not change. We want the software, the medical device to be consistent. We want to do the same job. And if we exclude the continuous learning aspect of some AI techniques, that can be done. So AI software is not very different than any other software. And um, the only thing that AI can do and conventional techniques cannot do is the so-called continuous or active learning. We can turn that off for specific applications. So most AI techniques, the ones that were absolutely successful, they are actually static after the training is done. So after you spend a lot of time and energy and train a deep network for a specific application, uh, then it doesn't change anymore. So its behavior is static like any other uh, algorithm and software that we have been uh, showing to the FDA in the past 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, so there is no concern in that regard, but um, uh, in depending on application, perhaps we want to see more validation, probably multi-site validation will be more important, and perhaps um, the size of the data that we look at it and, lo uh, uh, and also external validation will be much more important for AI application than uh, conventional techniques. Well, see, now that you describe it that way, it seems as if the AI itself isn't necessarily the scary part. It's perhaps maybe taking the human being out of the picture, which many people may be concerned with. So what is our comfort level with that now, you know, in terms of practical applications? I mean, I think you could imagine AI systems that, which we talked about before, which have been developed to count cells, quantify, uh, measure things, and so on. And then Maybe uh, we can develop tools to triage the right case to the right pathologist, either by organ type, severity of disease, cancer present or not. But leave the leave the pathologist in the driver's seat, so to speak, where this, these are tools that can right now assist the pathologist to allow him or her to do his job better or more efficiently. So do we have a comfort level with that right now? So I, I guess everything every piece of work or every opinion that implies that we can replace pathologists is probably uh, some somebody uh, 
that is ignorant to the potential uh, uh, capabilities of AI or is ignorant to the intricacies and complexities of the way that pathologists work. We, we, are, we can absolutely not do that. We cannot exclude pathologists even, even if we wanted to. Uh, and you, you cannot just exclude a pathologist, replace it by saying, okay, I have a technique that pro, uh, diagnoses prostate cancer and tells you this is prostate adenocarcinoma by looking at the specimen uh, of one image uh, and then, okay, we don't need the prostate specialist. What? That prostate specialist doesn't just tell you this is adenocarcinoma. He or she also writes a sophisticated report, analyzes the histology, makes recommendation based on the experience of the past, and also attends uh, tumor boards, talks to the oncologist, talks to the medical physicist, talks to... Uh, even uh, to, to, sometimes to the nurses, <laughs> to make sure that his knowledge, his competency from pathology side is uh, properly channeled to, uh, to, toward what we call precision medicine, so to really come up with customized uh, treatment for, for patient. We are not there yet in AI. I don't know why people say that. We, we cannot possibly, even if you wanted to, we cannot possibly replace all these functionalities of, of the pathologist. And um, the absolute value of AI is when you put the pathologist in the center and say, okay, what does the pathologist need to do the job? And then we try to help anyway. And it, even if it is that, that the AI says, I know that's prostate adenocarcinoma, okay, why do, you, why do you say that? Well, AI doesn't have a proper solution right now. There is a lot of research going on to explain what, why AI says what AI says. But we know that in, in pathology, in medical field generally, you cannot just say this is like this because you have to provide the explanation such that other colleagues... Uh, who are involved understand it and then they can uh, integrate it within their own decision making right right there certainly are standards and expectations surrounding medical judgments so like you said you need to you know have a good reason for saying what you're saying you need to be able to communicate that diagnosis to colleagues so that brings us i think this would be a good time to talk about ethics um, so this i think is incredibly fascinating to me like what what exactly do we mean when we talk about ethics in artificial intelligence? Well, uh, it, this has been one of the strangest things I have experienced. It seems that some of some of uh, some of speakers, some of the contributors to the field, um, think, or they at least they create the impression that the ethics for AI will be a, a different type of ethics, which is not true. Uh, uh, when we talk about ethics for AI, that basically we are saying we need new rules for ourselves to use AI. That's what we mean. Because AI is not an independent entity that needs ethical constraints. We are, as human uh, humans, we need ethical constraints. But the, the ethical principles that we need to comply would, going back to the origin starting from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle coming to the modern time, nothing has changed. So the ethical principles that we have, even if you want to use a principle like the utilitarian uh, framework to say whatever, whatever is, is, is good for the society is good, whatever is not harmful is good. So we, we are not inventing any new ethical principle, but we are getting access to a more 
capable tool. So if we introduce uh, how to make a knife, you need to talk about it. Okay, a knife is good to cut bread and share it in a friendly manner, but it's not good to use it to kill somebody. So now we have AI. AI is the same thing. You can use it to diagnose cancer. We can use it to uh, uh, predict uh, uh, climate change and so on. But we, can, we should not use it to, I don't know, create robots, soldiers that go and kill other people. Right, but right. fundamentally, this is not something new. So when we talk about ethics, is about because now we have a much more powerful tool at our disposal, and we have to maybe reformulate and emphasize some of the ethical guidelines that we have been using all along. So, and in in medical field, of course, we have to talk about education. We uh, we have to talk about what would be the uh, what would be the impact of bias and what, uh, how we can compensate that with validation and what type of new validation and checks and balances we need. But there, there is no, virtually no new ethical rules that we can talk about. Yeah, I think that's, that's fascinating. I think in terms of you know, how, th- how should things be deployed, of course, in a responsible manner, which we've known since the beginning of time, right? We first do no harm is one of our tenants in medicine. But then this... You know, kind of under the surface, though, some interesting questions crop up, such as, is it ever, quote unquote, ethical to disagree with a conclusion generated by an AI system, which I think is is interesting, at least for discussion, because, you know, humans and computers are different and have different capabilities, as we said. And, you know, in a computer program or an AI system, we're dealing with data and human beings are dealing with experience, right? It may be thousands of cases, but it's ultimately, it's viewed in the lens of anecdotes, you know, a thousand different anecdotes or a thousand different pieces of subjectivity, right, versus a computer system. And then so you have a person who comes to a different conclusion than something generated by data. How do we handle that? Again, AI systems uh, are will be as good as we are. So we can go back to the, to what Alan Turing taught us in forms of, um, the, uh, the test for the computer, the Turing test, and nothing has changed and nothing will change within the foreseeable future that the ultimate validator of computers and AI is the human operator. So to say how smart AI is, you still need a human. So which means what? The intelligence of AI is always will always be a subset of humans. They cannot possibly Uh, become smarter than us unless we go into abstract uh, discussions of consciousness which is we can do that from academic perspective but is absolutely the wrong time to do that because we are light years away from uh, a piece of software to gain consciousness Um, it's an interesting entertaining discussions but is is not there so and from ethical perspective responsibility and accountability of course is the we don't make a wolf uh, responsible for eating a ship it's because well there is no consciousness they have been programmed to do that ethics becomes in place when you have when you are a responsible being and you are accountable for your actions because you have consciousness because you have you can make decisions ai it not, will not be, uh, again, in foreseeable future, will not be better than uh, the set of pathologists from which the data set has come to train that uh, AI agent. So, but fundamentally, the question is first, who is responsible if AI makes decision? Uh, will the software company take responsibility? I doubt that. 
So uh, again, in foreseeable future, I doubt that, that any company takes responsibility for that decision. So it will, things will be formulated as suggestions, as recommendations. And again, the human operator, the pathologist is in charge to make that decision and naturally also has the responsibility uh, to do so. Uh, when we get to the point that we have a, um, a, an adequately large data set that represents the diversity and the observable variability of diagnostic or treatment planning decisions for specific cases, it could be that the AI agent is generally much more accurate and much more efficient than any individual uh, uh, um, pathologist uh, at, at a time. It could be. But at the moment, I'm not aware of such uh, AI agent. Why? Because we do not have that large, representative, diverse uh, data set that uh, consists of uh, instances that represent the observable variability, different pieces of knowledge, different schools of medicine. We don't have that. And this is not something that one hospital or one government can do. You need, you need to bring many, many stakeholders together, government, companies, uh, hospitals, clinics, research institutions, patient advocacy groups. You have to bring them together. So this is something that I hope I see the initiative of that soon, but we are not there yet. So uh, at the moment, AI will be just a very, very small uh, digital assistant to the pathologist. Pathologist is in driver's seat and he will or she will make the decisions. Yeah, the pathologist is in the driver's seat. And I think that's a good way to look at it as who is responsible. All right, the pilot, the pilot flying the plane is responsible for the lives of all those passengers on board, not the autopilot system. <laughs> okay, now... Dr. Hamid Tisush, thank you so much for being with us. Now, before we wrap up, what do you see uh, for the future? What's on the horizon? What excites you in the, up, in the upcoming years? Um, how is AI going to move the field of pathology forward? It excites me, really. My field is image search, and I really, I, I, I will be very lucky that before I retire, I see that we apply search technologies in large archives of medical images, and we can find patterns with respect to molecular data, genetics, uh, proteins, build the relationship between the bridge between the um, collective wisdom of the doctors, which is embodied in reports and the images. And we can see and find things that is impossible for the pathologists and radiologists to see. You cannot look at 10 million images and patients and find stuff. And we, how we can translate that into drug discovery, better treatment, better diagnosis, and so on. So having access, seeing initiative that create publicly available uh, data sets of medical images such that researchers across the globe can access it, build uh, solutions, and can validate it in a proper way such that we can move on and find actual places where AI can provide real value for the medicine of future. So looking at the immensity of data with techniques that are, have to be fundamentally unsupervised, they can figure it out on their own, and they can find patterns that we humans cannot see to go beyond the limit of human information processing. That would be exciting. Yeah, I, I, think, that, I think that certainly would be exciting. And I think that's the, fu that's the future many of us are envisioning. Well, our guest has been Professor Hamid Tisush from the University of Waterloo. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. 
Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.